Well, we're going to continue on in our look at the life of David this morning. So if you have a Bible, um, would you like to open and actually turn to Psalm 142? Um, We're going to be in Psalm 142 this morning, and Dar's going to come and read for us. Just to put Psalm 142 into context, we're reading from 1 Samuel 22, uh, reading verse 1 and 2 to start with, and then leading on to Psalm 142. Psalm Uh, 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 and 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Dullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became a commander over them, And there were with him about 400 men. Turning to Psalm 142. A mass skill of David when he was in the cave. A prayer. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Everybody doing okay? Good, 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 good. Right, this morning we join David in a cave in the wilderness. Now, as I was preparing this, thinking to myself, I really, really don't like caves. I don't know about you. That's not because I'm claustrophobic, but I don't get why there are some people in, the wo- people in the world who consider it their hobby to go exploring caves. I don't know why they would do that. It doesn't make sense. So, just the risks to completely outweigh the fun in this. I mean, you go into a cave, it's dark, and it's damp, and then uh, there's the risk of flash flooding. Uh, you could get lost. And then what about a rock fall? I mean... I hate to break it to you, but caves are risky places. And I don't know about you, but I think for me, a cave is the last place I would want to be and don't understand why people would consider being in a cave something fun. Now, now for David, that seems to be something of the case, is that the, the cave isn't a fun place. It is, it is a dead end. David has been on the run. And David literally now has his back against the wall. He's been hunted. He's been hounded. He's been chased. He's been pursued. From people group to people group, place to place, city to city, this is the end of the road. David is now stuck. Here's the key word. David is trapped. 
David is helpless and has nowhere else to turn. Now, I'll cast our minds back a little bit to last week. We, we know the context, right? David has been incredibly successful. He's seen the Lord's hand move in the valley of Allah and defeated that taunting giant Goliath. And now he's rocketed to fame. Everyone loves David. And he's successful in everything that he does. But there's one person, remember, who doesn't like this. King Saul. The guy who's on the throne. The guy who's been rejected by God and he knows it. Now in his contorted thinking, he's spinning out of control in resentment and jealousy towards David. Saul is a threat. David is a threat to Saul's own throne. So Saul wants to see David gone. Now this jealousy sparks the beginning of what I like to call David's fugitive days. He is on the run. But he's all out of ideas now. There's no more places to go. There's no more tactics to be employed. David is stuck. David's trapped. David's in that place of overwhelm when he's got no place to turn. There's no one there. David is completely helpless. Now, I know in many ways we can't identify with David this morning. I mean, how many times do we find ourselves in a cave in the wilderness of Israel? Not very often, right? So when we're not there, Neither are we being chased by a resentful and jealous Israelite king around the countryside, are we? At least I hope we're not. That's not the case. But I wonder if this morning we can identify with how David feels. The emotion. Back against the wall. Stuck. Don't know what to do. Trapped. And feeling helpless. And at a loss. Nowhere to turn. I think there are plenty of occasions in our own lives where we find ourselves in that place, entirely overwhelmed, feeling stuck in our lives, feeling helpless and wanting to do something, but we can't. And just think about some of the times we do feel helpless. Sometimes that can be financial, can't it? In the grip of debt and wanting to get free, but we just don't know where to turn. We don't know where the help's going to come from. Been there before? Maybe it's an illness. Uh, The doctor either can't figure it out or they don't know how to treat it. You're stuck. Where do you turn? You've been there before, maybe at work. You've got a boss who's irrational and puts incredible pressure on you, but you can't leave the job. You've got to stay there. You feel stuck. What about a child or a loved one who's pressed the self-destruct button and there seems to be nothing you can do? And how do you feel? You feel entirely helpless. I mean, I could write, we could write a list together of a thousand and one different moments in our lives where we feel trapped, where we feel stuck, where we feel helpless. We know perhaps what it's like to be in those cave-like moments. Backs against the wall, I don't know where to turn right now. So what I want to do this morning then is explore how David responds when he's in the cave. I mean, what does he do when he's in that helplessness? When he's stuck and trapped and overwhelmed... How does he carefully manage this situation? Because I think what he does is he manages this place of overwhelm in a very spiritually healthy way. David provides us with a process or a path to walk when we ourselves find us and our experiences in those caves, in those cave-like moments. You see, in David, 
We, we see where he stands. We see how he processes. We see where he roots himself. We see something of the foundations of when David feels stuck. We see how this man of God responds. So I want to have a look at three key areas in David's response here. I want us to see that he acknowledges his emotions. That's the first thing. So he exhibits an emotional awareness as he's overwhelmed. Second thing I want us to see is David utters honest prayer. Not a veiled prayer, not a half-hearted prayer, but entirely honest. And then we see him, this leads him to a place where he exercises genuine trust. We see him where he roots himself, which is characteristic of David so far, but it's really quite incredible. We see what he learns about trusting God in the cave. I wonder if you've still got your Bibles open on your laps, if you have them. Just cast your eyes over Psalm 142, and I I love to be able to do this, but I wonder if you just kind of scan your eyes over. Do you pick out some of the key words, Some 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 of the repeated phrases? Some of the themes begin to emerge as we read. Do you see this? With my voice, I cry. At the top, verse 2, I pour out my complaint before him. Verse 3, when my spirit faints within me. Verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of living. And then look at this in verse 7. What a key phrase to describe how he feels in the cave. Bring me out of this prison that I may give thanks to your name. Let's jump into the first one this morning. How does he respond? David acknowledges his emotions. Now what's key about this is that David demonstrates quite incredible emotional awareness, self-awareness here. How do we see his self-awareness? I think in two ways. David demonstrates that he knows what he feels, and he also seems to have a handle on why he feels it. Have a look at the first one, what he feels. You can see this in verse 1 and 2. With my voice, I cry to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And then verse 3, right at the top. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. And and then again, look at the... uh, Look at verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of living. Attend to my cry. Look at this. For I am brought very low. David has this clear understanding that when life is as overwhelming as it's ever been for him, he's able to unpick through the chaos and the complexity of his own emotions that would have inevitably been there when it was difficult. David seems to unpick that and understands where he is. But also he understands why he feels that way. So not just how he feels, but the why. Have a look at the second half of verse 3. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. He picks up on the same idea, second half of verse 6. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. So the reason he feels this way is because he's being hunted. He's being hounded. Saul and his men are after him. But there's another reason. Look at verse 4. Look to the right and see. There is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. Look at these words. No one cares for my soul. He feels lonely. Not not only is he being hunted by Saul and his men, there is no one there for him. And so David seems to be connecting the dots here. Here's how I feel, and here is why I feel that, that way. There's quite an incredible emotional awareness going on in David. Now, now this is true of the Psalms over, and definitely true in Psalm 142. 
But the Psalms are incredible, incredible for giving us an emotional literacy when we don't know what to say or what to do. I find the Psalms are incredible for this, right? Right through 150 Psalms, you find every single human experience, every, the spectrum of all human emotions right here in God's Word. The Psalms are incredible because when we don't know where to stand, we read the Psalms and we are given places where we can stand. And when we don't know what to do, the Psalms will show us what to do. And when we don't want to know what to say, the Psalms will give us words to say. When we feel like a big ball of out of control frustration and overwhelm, the Psalms can help us unpick the complexity and the chaos that we feel inside. And Psalm 142 does this. In the cave, in the overwhelm, in the helplessness. Look at David. He's demonstrating to us that he's well tuned in to what's going on on the inside. And, and he sees it as his priority to understand what he feels and why he feels that way. Now I think this is really important for us. Self-awareness, you can call it emotional intelligence, is a very healthy spiritual thing to do. And and it's good in all areas of life when life is going as we planned it to go. But it is of utmost importance when we feel overwhelmed and out of control. Let, Let me just give you a couple of reasons why it's so important. Firstly, it's important to understand how we feel and why we feel that way. Because if we don't, we will likely miss what it is that God is doing through us and in us when we are in those caves. So you know those moments when we feel overwhelmed and stuck and helpless? That's when the control freak within us is doing overtime. It's out of control. And we're looking for strategies. We're frantic. We're losing sleep. We're losing joy. We're losing peace. We're trying to figure it out in our own strength. And what can happen in that chaos when we are trying to make this work, we can completely miss what it is that God is teaching us in that trial and in that test. Isn't it in the caves where God forms us the most? Isn't it in the caves where we have his tender hand pruning us and shaping us and forming us into the characters that he would have us be? Now, if we're spinning out of control and we're not carefully handling how we're doing, we we can so often miss his pruning work. The second reason why this is important is because if we don't grow in self-awareness, when we feel overwhelmed, we're likely... We're liable to hurt the people around us. Now, if you're anything like me, and I think you are because you're all human beings, there are going to be times in your life, just like mine, where we get so overwhelmed, so fed up, we feel so out of control and so stuck that our emotions boil over. We don't have a handle on them. And what happens in those moments? It's usually the people we love most who end up getting hurt, isn't it? It's the same in my life. When I boil over, when I feel stuck, when I don't feel like there is a solution, when life is hard, it's usually the people who are closest to me that pay the price for that. I sinfully respond in a destructive way. I allow it to boil over. I just haven't taken a moment to process what it is that God is doing in this tough situation. And I'm trying to grab it out for control and people get hurt. What I love about David here is that he's aware of what's going on. So that means that he seems to have a handle on the fact that God is shaping him. He's learning how to trust God, but also he's not hurting others. In fact, the opposite is true. You see, in in, um, 1 Samuel 22 that was read earlier, everyone who's distressed comes to David. He becomes someone whom the disillusioned run to. So he becomes a pillar 
for everyone else who finds themselves in a cave situation. He becomes that support. Okay, so he acknowledges his emotions. Here's the second thing I want us to see. He utters honest prayer. Let's go through the first couple of verses again. Look at the direction of David's words here. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Verse 5, again, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge in the land of the living. Verse 7, bring me out of this prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous, the righteous will surround me and you will deal bountifully with me. What's the direction of this? It's not to the congregation of Israel. The direction of this is to the Lord. David is praying, just as the top of the psalm tells us. But what kind of a prayer is this? This is totally honest. Do you read some of those words? I cry. This is my plea. And look at that, perhaps even uncomfortable word. Lord, I'm bringing my complaint before you. David seems to recognize that he can bring this total honesty to his heavenly father. Now, maybe this does make us feel uncomfortable that he brings this complaint. Maybe the optimist within us is crying out, oh, come on, David, it's not that bad, is it? Or I thought the Bible was supposed to be a bit more helpful. <laughs> or a bit hopeful, sorry. Well, this is true, right? That, that the Psalms will never hide from the difficulty of the spectrum of human experience. The, the Psalms seem to give us this permission to pray these honest prayers and doesn't hide from the fact that life can get really hard for us. I want to make just three really simple, realistic conclusions from David's honest praying here. Here's the first one. The fact that David prays honestly and brings his complaint means that even God's people go through hard times. Now that might seem like a really obvious, strange thing to say, but I think so often our um, natural assumptions or, or, or our kind of undercurrent way of thinking is that we do a deal with God. So we kind of say, well, and it's completely religious and not what Christianity is about. But what we can say is, God, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my bit here. Here's my side of the deal. I'll go to church when it's convenient for me. I'll, I'll open my Bible every now and again, and I'll pray sometimes, and I'll try to be a kind and good citizen in this world. I mean, that's my part of the deal, God. So your part of the deal is to bring good things my way. You need to put good circumstances in my life. And so what we develop within us is this sense of entitlement. I've done this, so therefore I deserve this. And when we think like that, we tend to think that difficult circumstances surely can't come our way. But that's not the case. Because the Christian message doesn't say, figure your life out and then you'll go to God and he'll make your life good for you. No, the Christian message says, go to Jesus and you will get Jesus. Go to him and you will receive grace and mercy, hope and you will receive a new heart. Things will be different, but life won't be easy. In fact, it may even get harder. And as Peter says, we shouldn't be surprised of the fiery trial that we're facing. Now think about David. He's anointed by God, right? He's God's chosen king. He's the man who has a heart after God's heart, and yet he finds himself in a cave. It is still, far, still hard for us too. The second realistic conclusion I want to draw from David's honest prayer um, Surely this shows us then that we have permission to go to God when we feel helpless. We have permission to go to God when we feel helpless. Again, that might seem like a strange and obvious thing to say. 
But if we dig in to, to our subversive thinking, I think very often we think helplessness is the point of failure. I mean, helplessness is the point where we are hopeless. I mean, I think that tends to be the message of our world, that we need to be standing independently on our own two feet. And if we ever have to lean on anyone else, if we ever have to reach out for for help, if we ever need the people around us, then you've got to ask questions. Have you really figured out life properly yet? No. Now, hang on a second. This helplessness is a good thing to bring to God. Hang on a second. Helplessness is the very beginning of spiritual vitality. Helplessness is the very thing we do bring to God. That's how we even become Christians, is through helplessness, isn't it? Helplessness is the beginning of our spiritual lives. We, we go to Jesus, I can't do this on my own, I can't save myself, I can't forgive myself, I'm a sinner, I'm a mess, I'm broken, I can't make things right between me and God. I need Jesus. See, the beginning of our spiritual lives is at the point of helplessness. And the moment we move away from that place of helplessness, we miss and we forsake the spiritual vitality that is ours in Jesus Christ. We live in this life and liberation of having let go and saying, God, you are everything and I am totally dependent upon you. So surely David's honest prayer in this cave proves to us that we have permission to go to God when we are helpless. Third realistic conclusion here. David's honest prayer shows us God's heart to hear from his people. God's heart to hear from us. I love what um, theologian Derek Kidner says. He says, surely the presence of these kinds of prayers in the Bible prove to us that God understands. God knows how men speak when they are desperate, he writes. Isn't that cool? Psalm 142 has been included in the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God. This is breathed out by God. These are his words. And so Psalm 142 has been included for a purpose. And one of the things this is proving to us is that when we're in the caves, our Heavenly Father desires to hear from us. This proves God's understanding. Not only does it give us permission to go to him, but it shows us his very heart to hear from his kids. So this shows us God's heart and his kindness, his welcome. Okay, so uh, uh, emotional awareness, the acknowledgement of how he feels, the uttering of of an honest prayer. Now these things combined lead David to exercise genuine trust. Exercise genuine trust. Now notice his honest prayer seems to give him an orientation here. It gives him roots. Being able to pray honestly now means that David can now go to the one person and the one place who is able to do something. And his honest prayer seems to cultivate genuine trust in his heart. God's got this. Read through some of these words that exhibit his trust. Uh, Verse 3, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Verse 5, we seem to see this same place of trust. I cry to you, O Lord, you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. And then I love the second half of verse 7. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. This is David exhibiting the fact that he is trusting in God when he finds himself helpless in the cave. It's quite amazing. There is this expectation that God is the one who can do something, not him. It's interesting to me that this is, this is the similar mindset that David had in the Valley of Allah, right? Remember in the Valley of Allah when he's, when he's fighting Goliath. 
Everybody on this, uh, in this adrenaline-charged battle scene is trusting in the weaponry, aren't they? You've got the Philistines and Goliath, and they're like, we're going to win because of Goliath. Somebody come and fight him. So they're trusting in the strength of Goliath. But the Israelites are doing the same thing, and they're paralyzed by fear, aren't they? They're looking at Goliath saying, we're not going to win because we don't have a Goliath. And there's only one person on this entire battle scene who thinks differently, and it's David. And what does he exhibit? A total trust in the Lord. Look, if we're going to win, God's going to do something here. And he trusts God to deliver his people in their darkest moment. Now, this is the same soundtrack going on in the valley. But David is just learning it at a much deeper level. He got to learn it in the face of Goliath. But now, now he's lonely. Now the crowds who love him aren't there. Now David's in the cave with his back against the wall and he feels helpless. Is he not learning how to trust God in a completely different way that goes far deeper than he was as he faced Goliath? This is deeper, isn't it? And this is true for us. When we are in the caves of helplessness, we will learn to trust God in a completely different way. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, let's come back to the deal kind of thinking we bring to our relationship with God. How, how do we do the deal? We do the deal. We say, here's what I'm going to do as I follow you, Jesus. Here's, here's what my life, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. So what I expect is for you to bring good start circumstances my way. I expect favorable times in my life. We bring a sense of entitlement often. Now, what caves will do is that well, caves will take us to a place where we have nothing left. Caves, caves will take us to a place when we are faced with the reality of who God is, not just what he gives. Follow me. Caves strip away the shaky foundations of the deal-like thinking, and caves leave us with nothing but the character of God. You see, when we're in a cave, God is asking us, you'll have me for what I give, and when the circumstances are favorable, but... Will you have me for who I am? Do you see that? When the lights of our happy days go out and we're out of control in the cave, we really find out what we're resting on. Now, if our relationships with God, if if it's based upon the circumstances he gives, then our relationships will be dictated by how good our day is and what circumstances we're in. But if our relationship with God is based upon who he is, then we'll have found something far deeper, far more stabilizing, and far more enduring. In the caves we find, at a deeper level, what the Christian life is all about. We don't see God just as a gift giver, but we see him as a gift in himself. You see, caves remove us from the deal, like thinking, and to a place where we are dependent upon our God for what we need. And I think that's the strange and subversive beauty about a cave. Is that when everything else is stripped away, we are left with God alone. Caves cause us to be faced with the reality of who he is, not just what he gives. And it's in the cave, therefore, we are spiritually transformed as we grab a hold of God himself because we have nothing else left. It's in the caves of helplessness where we are most formed spiritually. Okay, so that's David's response in the cave. You know, he acknowledges his emotions, he utters honest prayer, 
And, and, and then we find David exercises genuine trust, right? Now, you might be thinking, well, James, that is lovely and formulaic. That's nice. But here's the problem. When I am in a cave, when I am overwhelmed, stuck, and trapped, <laughs> this is going to feel like an absolute miracle to do. Because, right, when we're in those places, we feel completely all over the place, overwhelmed, out of control, trying to figure... The complexity and the chaos inside is hard to get a handle of when we're in caves. You might be thinking to yourself, <laughs> finding some kind of emotional awareness in a cave? Good luck. Uh, or echoing an honest prayer, saying an honest prayer? <laughs> One word might be a miracle. Uh, and, and then genuine trust, well, I'm trying, but I feel like I'm failing. It's easy to say this. It's another thing to do this. And maybe the question is more this. How do I find strength to do what David does when he's in a cave? Because when I'm there, it doesn't feel like I have any strength. Well, to answer that, I want to flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 22 and reread those first two verses in the chapter. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And look at this in verse 2, I love this. And when everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became a commander over them. And when they were with him, they were with him about 400 men. Now what's incredible here is that the cave doesn't defeat David. David emerges from the cave. It's like a, a rising resurrection moment for him. And as he emerges from the cave that doesn't seem to have a hold on him, David emerges with a new community. It couldn't keep him down. And, and David then becomes, look at this, the people who gather around him, the people who are helpless, the, the people who are struggling, the people who have become disillusioned with life. Do you see this? David becomes the captain of the disillusioned. He becomes the commander of the helpless. Oh, this points us to Jesus, doesn't it? Because we have a King Jesus who went into a cave, a tomb. But this tomb didn't defeat him. This cave didn't have anything on him. Because in this cave, our David defeated sin and its consequences. He defeated death. He defeated the enemy. He paid for God's wrath for our sins. He defeated our suffering. He brought us eternal hope. He gave us a way to know salvation, a new heart, forgiveness, grace, and mercy, a new identity. Jesus defeated the deepest of all caves. But Jesus rose from the cave because it didn't have a hold of him, on him. And Jesus emerged from this cave and now with a new community, the church. And what? Jesus is what? The commander of the helpless. The the captain of the disillusioned. So we know that Jesus has been into the deepest cave. He's been into that deepest, most overwhelming, darkest, dank cave. And he is one. So surely that provides us with strength. That it, this means that no matter what kind of helpless situation we find ourselves in, no matter how stuck and trapped we might feel, it is not the end of the story. Jesus' victory and resurrection from the cave means that there is always hope. That wherever we are is not the end of the story. There is a hope that cannot be taken. It is undefilable, as First Peter tells us. It cannot be gone. So because of that hope, that means we can find strength. 
That means we lean on on the captain of the disillusioned, Jesus Christ. That means that when we find ourselves in those places of helplessness, we lean in on his strength. And when we have him, that means we're in a place where we can pick through some of the complexities of how we feel. A bit of understanding that comes from Jesus for sure. And, and then what can we do? We can utter an honest prayer knowing that he's interceding for us. And then genuine trust because Jesus has trusted where we couldn't. He has exhibited perfect trust when we don't know how and we lean in on him. I think it's incredible that the cave doesn't swallow David and he emerges and he's victorious over the cave. But we see how he walks this path. So may we this morning, when we find ourselves in the cave-like helplessness, when we are stuck, when we are trapped, when we are crushed in the, of the chaos, of the overwhelm that we feel, may we find strength in our king, the captain of the helpless, the, c- the commander of the disillusioned, King Jesus, and find the comfort and the strength we need in him. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you took David into the cave and that in the cave through the difficulty through the helplessness you formed David spiritually David learned to trust in a different way he learned a deeper kind of trust father we thank you that he provides for us something of a a path to walk but more than that He points us to our captain, to our commander, who was not defeated by the cave and who rose with a new community. So this morning, Father, would you help us to find our comfort, to find our strength, to find our roots and our foundation, all in Jesus, the one who is entirely trustable when we feel helpless and out of control. Father, would you give us peace in the times of helplessness and help us to find it in Jesus. And we're praying in his name. Amen.